Almighty God, we pray right now that you would speak your word into our hearts, even through my very imperfect words that I'm going to preach now. Let us hear your word um, speak boldly and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Unless you've been living under a rock, or maybe you haven't been to church over the past month, you probably know our church's vision statement by now. It's on the front of the bulletin. It is treasuring Christ above all, and what? Helping others do the same. I, I want to answer three questions about our vision statement in relation to today's scripture. Number one, what does treasuring Christ above all have to do with loving others? Number two, how hard is it to love the way scripture commands us to? Number three, how does treasuring Christ above all enable us or help us to love like this? But first, what does treasuring Christ above all have to do with loving others? I want to begin by reminding you of an episode in the Gospels in which a Pharisee comes up to Jesus and asks Jesus what the greatest commandment in Scripture is. And Jesus responds with two commandments, one from Deuteronomy 6.5 and one from Leviticus 19.18. Two commandments that are so intricately linked in our Lord's mind that they are inseparable. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when we consider our church's vision statement, treasuring Christ above all and helping others do the same, the first part of Jesus' great commandment gets fulfilled pretty easily, right? Jesus Christ is God, of course, so treasuring Christ means we also love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and in treasuring Christ, we'll, of course, want to love and treasure Christ's Father. By all means, that's true, but what about the second part of the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself? How is this reflected in our church's vision statement. Well, it's definitely there. This morning, for instance, Sunday school teachers are helping students of all ages to treasure Christ above all. We had confirmation and baptism a couple of weeks ago for some young people. Linnea and many adult volunteers loved and supported these young people in an effort to help them treasure Christ above all for a lifetime and unto eternity, we hope and pray. When we fill the trunk or back seat of a hungry family's car with food, when we visit the homebound in our church and bring them meals and prayer blankets, and when we build handicapped ramps for needy people, when we pack meals for hungry people living on the other side of the world, we want the recipients of our love and time and generosity to see how precious Christ is to us, and we want them to treasure and glorify Christ alongside us. And of course, any effort on the part of our church to fulfill the Great Commission has to do with helping others treasure Christ above all. Still, is this vision statement too lofty, too high-minded? I mean, is it really practical enough 
for everyday life. What about all those other neighbors that we encounter every day in our lives, including the neighbor sitting next to you in worship this morning, or people we live next to, or people we work with, or work for, or go to school with. What does this vision statement have to do with loving them? What does treasuring Christ above all have to do with loving people in the normal, average, everyday, mundane circumstances of our lives? And my answer is, as I will attempt to show from today's scripture, is that our vision statement has everything to do with loving our neighbor. In fact, unless we treasure Christ above all, it's impossible to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the main point of today's sermon. We treasure Christ above all for the sake of loving our neighbor as ourselves. We treasure Christ above all in order to love other people, especially to love them the way the Apostle Peter says we're supposed to love them in verse 22 of chapter 1, a few verses ahead of today's scripture. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. How are we doing at that? That sounds incredibly hard, doesn't it? And this is point number two. How hard is it for us to love other people like Peter says we're supposed to? To make matters worse, Peter implies that the way we accomplish loving our brothers and sisters in verse 22 is by doing what he says to do in verse 1 of chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. In verse 1, he's telling us to put away these sins, in other words, that so often prevent us from loving others the way we should. And one of those sins is hypocrisy, which is what happens when you pretend to be something or someone you're not. Well, Peter himself has some experience with that particular sin. Um, the Apostle Paul accuses Peter publicly of hypocrisy when Paul describes an event that happened years earlier in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 13. This was years after the resurrection, years after Peter received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, years after he fearlessly proclaimed the gospel at great personal risk to his life and safety, years after he stood up to his adversaries and said, we must obey God rather than men. That was after he had that vision on the roof of his house in Acts chapter 10 in which God told him to welcome Gentile believers as full-fledged Christians and members of the church. This was after he baptized the Gentile Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, and told church leaders that we must accept them as brothers and sisters. After all those experiences, Peter went to Paul's church in Antioch, where there were many Gentile believers, 
And back in the ancient world before Christ, remember, Jews and Gentiles didn't mix or socialize or share meals together. Jews feared that Gentiles would make them ceremonially unclean. But the gospel of Jesus Christ changed things. Now there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That means because Christ fulfilled the law for us and God's people are no longer under the law, Gentile believers now have equal access to God alongside Jewish believers. They now enjoy equal standing under God through faith in Christ because our standing before God no longer depends on anything that we do or fail to do. Rather, it depends only on what Christ has done for us. That's what the gospel teaches us. And Peter understood this, and he warmly received his Gentile brothers and sisters in Paul's church. He loved them earnestly from a pure heart, at least at first. And then some important and influential people from the church in Jerusalem, his home church, showed up at Paul's church, and these people weren't so sure at all about Jews and Gentiles eating together. In fact, they didn't like it at all. They thought that in order for Gentiles to become fully Christian, they needed first to become Jewish. They needed to, to get circumcised and, and follow Jewish dietary laws. These, these people from the Jerusalem church failed to grasp the full implications of the gospel. And Peter was afraid of them. Afraid that these men would judge him. Afraid that they would think less of him. Afraid that he would fail to measure up to their standards. Afraid that they would gossip about him to other people. Afraid that they would harm his reputation among his colleagues back home. So instead of doing the right thing, instead of continuing to love these Gentiles earnestly from a pure heart, Peter himself withdrew from his Gentile brothers and sisters. He stopped eating with them, stopped sharing meals with them. He treated them once again like outcasts or outsiders, even though he knew for sure that God had told him directly back in Acts chapter 10 not to do this. To say the least, Peter himself failed to do what he commands us to do in verse 1 of today's scripture, to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And he failed to do what he commands us to do in chapter 1, verse 22, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Paul saw him failing in this way, and he called him out on it publicly. So when Peter wrote today's scripture as an old man, not long before his own death by crucifixion, he surely thought of his own failures and knew from experience how hard it is, even for us Christians, to love the way we're supposed to. He knew from experience how hard it is to put away those sins that so often prevent us from loving others. In fact, from a human point of view, apart from God's grace, it isn't merely hard for us to love like this. The Bible makes it clear it's absolutely impossible to love like this. From a human point of view, 
We can all relate to the Apostle Paul's words that describe the human condition. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. So is there any hope for us? Well, the good news is, yes, there is hope because we have the Holy Spirit. We have been born again. We have been given new power to overcome sin in our lives. Power not to be enslaved to sin anymore. But the New Testament tells us over and over that these changes don't happen overnight. They don't happen automatically. They don't happen without our active participation. That's why Peter can say, Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander because he knows that we have power through the Holy Spirit at work within us to put those sins away. And this power to change is called sanctification. Sanctification is a gift of God's grace, but it's a gift of grace that God gives to us in part through our own effort. And this brings us to point number three. What what do we do to participate in this process of sanctification? How do we love others and put away the sins that prevent us from loving others? Peter gives us a clue at the beginning of verse one. It's that little word, so. Pay attention to those little words. (laughs) Many translations say, therefore, same thing. Therefore, which means, as a result of something I have just said, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That little word, so, in other words, connects what Peter says in verse 1 with what he's just been saying in previous verses, which means that we will be able to accomplish what Peter is commanding in verse 1 by remembering and applying what he has just said in verses 22 to 25 of chapter 1. And what has he just said? Let me summarize. He's just said that we are born again through the preaching of the good news about Jesus. Good news literally means gospel. Because of the gospel, in other words, in light of the gospel, as a consequence of the gospel, which you have believed and received now, therefore, so do these things. If we don't remember what we have believed and received when we first believed and received the gospel of Christ, we will have little success, I'm afraid when it comes to loving others and overcoming sin. We must remember what God has done for us through Christ. We must remember the gospel. We must remember how the gospel is actually good news, not for people living simply on the other side of the world, not for people in our community who never darken the door of the church. We must remember how it's good news for you and me. So, how is the gospel good news? What does the gospel mean? Literally, everything I'm about to say, and I'm going to say a lot quickly, Kavana's going to put some of it on the screen, everything I'm about to say comes directly, almost, or in some cases, uh, it's implied, from God's word. Are you ready? 
The gospel means that through the atoning death of Christ on the cross, in which Christ suffers and dies for our sins and gives us his righteousness in return, God has done everything necessary to bring you into a right relationship with him as you receive this gift of eternal life through faith in Christ. The gospel means that there is now therefore no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. It means that all of your sins, past, present, and future, are nailed to the cross with Christ. They are now completely forgiven. It means God has brought, bought you at an infinite price. The precious blood of His Son, Jesus. It means you're adopted into God's family as God's precious and highly favored sons and daughters. And you now call God Abba, Father, just like Jesus did. It means God is now on your side, so you have no need to fear. It means He is now for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Nothing and no one. The gospel means God now loves you as much as He loves His only begotten Son. It means God shows you His favor constantly. It means you have an advocate in heaven, our Lord Jesus, pleading for you before the Father. It means the Holy Spirit Himself is praying for you through your own prayers to ensure that our Father always gives you precisely what you need. It means God is now working out everything in your life for your ultimate good. It means He's transforming all of the bad stuff, all of the evil stuff that the devil throws your way into something that will ultimately be good for you. The gospel means that God knows the plans he has for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. It means that no weapon that's formed against you will succeed and God will condemn every tongue that accuses you in judgment. The gospel means you are the apple of God's eye, Psalm 17, 8. You are beautiful to him. You have captured his heart and his banner over you is love. God now treasures you. God loves you with a love from which literally nothing in the world, nothing out of this world can ever separate you. Lord, may we have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Amen. Can we even comprehend how much we're loved by our Heavenly Father. Can we even comprehend how precious we are to Him? With all these gospel promises in mind, each of which comes from God's Word. I'll prove it to you if you don't believe me. With all of these gospel promises in mind, what on earth was Peter so afraid of losing for instance, when these leaders from the Jerusalem church showed up, what on earth was he afraid would happen if they saw him doing something of which they disapproved, eating and drinking alongside these Gentiles? How often does fear prevent us from loving others? When I'm afraid, that's when I take it out on others. <laughs> when I'm afraid, instead of running to God, my rock, my refuge, my ever-present help in time of need, I like to lash out in anger. When I'm afraid, that's often when I hurt people, when I'm afraid, I certainly fail 
a lot of the time, to love earnestly from a pure heart. What was Peter afraid of? Was Peter afraid he would lose the approval of these fine men? So what? Only God's approval matters, and Peter is covered in the righteousness of Christ. God couldn't approve of him more than he does. Was Peter afraid he would lose the love and esteem of these fine men? So what? God loves Peter as much as he loves his only begotten son, Jesus, to the fullest extent possible. Peter doesn't need the love of any mere human to be satisfied and fulfilled. Was Peter afraid that these men would withhold favor and privileges and gifts from him? So what? God is working out everything for Peter's good, and God is always showing him his favor. Was Peter afraid that these men would start talking about him, gossiping about him, putting him down in front of others? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the biggest lie ever. <laughs> Sometimes I think words are nearly the only thing that hurt me and probably the only thing nearly that hurt us. That's why the Apostle James compares words to a weapon of mass destruction, potentially. Something that causes a raging forest fire, an inferno. No, words are a deadly, dangerous weapon, and we so often wield them so carelessly and so callously. Still, should Peter have been afraid of words? Of people gossiping and saying hurtful things about him? Suppose these men did say hurtful things about Peter. So what? God, did you know this? God is also talking about Peter. And he's speaking words like redeemed, beloved, righteous, treasured highly favored, apple of my eye, their human opinions hardly matter. You get the picture. What I need to hear in my life over and over and over again are these amazing words and promises of unconditional love and protection and providence and mercy and grace and favor. The kind of healing that I need deep down in my spirit to enable me to overcome sins like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander comes from God's Word. Indeed, Peter himself makes this same point in verses 2 and 3. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Long for the pure spiritual milk. In verse 3 is a reference to Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good long for, taste, and see. These words are practically synonyms for that key word in our vision statement, treasuring. You long for that which you treasure. You taste and see. That is, you know from personal experience deep down in your bones that this thing that you treasure is good and you want more of it because it satisfies you like nothing else, and it's the only thing that brings you lasting happiness and joy. Also, 
what Peter calls pure spiritual milk, literally means in Greek, pure milk of the word. And given that at the end of chapter one, he's just been talking about God's word, he wants us to make a connection to God's word in this book, the Bible. Reading it, studying it, meditating upon it, hearing it preached, memorizing it, listening to its many promises as I have allowed us to do a moment ago in this sermon, listening to music that proclaims God's word, gathering with other Christians and studying God's word, talking about it, putting God's word at the very center of our lives. These are some of the ways that we learn to long for and taste and see and experience for ourselves the pure milk of the word. And I like this image of a newborn infant. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Because when does a young baby get fed? When the child cries out to its mother to let, it, to let his mother know he's hungry. Just sticking with the analogy that Peter uses here, if we're meant to be like newborn infants, what does this crying out correspond to? Prayer. Longing for the pure milk of the word and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is not only about God's word, it's also about prayer. They go together. The main way God speaks to us when we pray is through God's word. Literally, everyone in the world cries out like a newborn infant. Whether they pray or not, they are crying out in deep need. Life has a way of beating us up and wearing us down and wearing us out. Every single one of us, we all, every single one of us suffer a lot. Have you noticed? I don't care what your tax bracket is. I don't care what your income level is. I don't care what your socioeconomic status is. We all suffer. We all endure great hardship and pain just by living life in this fallen and sinful world. No one is exempt. If we could only see inside the hearts of other people, including the people sitting next to you, in church this morning. See the pain we all carry around. Wouldn't we all be a lot more compassionate, far less judgmental of others than we so often are? I've heard it said that a church is a hospital for sinners. Maybe it is, sounds nice, but if so, this hospital is too often filled with patients who try to convince one another that actually they're doing pretty good. They're pretty healthy. No, 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 I don't, I don't have any problems. Uh, I'm not struggling. I'm doing okay. What's your problem? And we're desperately afraid that if our brothers and sisters, our fellow patients at this hospital for sinners, find out what, that we are really sick because of sin and brokenness, well, we fear their judgment. Well, and as I said earlier, nothing good comes from fear. Well, yours truly really does need healing from sin. And I really do struggle in my faith. I struggle to trust Jesus. And I really do suffer. So if church really is a hospital for sinners, 
I'm not the doctor. <laughs> I'm a patient, just like the rest of you. And I need Jesus to heal me. We all do. Like newborn infants, we all cry out because we're desperately hungry in our spirits. Part of my task as a pastor is to convince you to look to God alone and to His Son Jesus for your healing, for your satisfaction, for your joy, for your treasure. Because our world, it's going to offer a million and one other places to look for these things. And most of the world looks in the wrong places to satisfy their deepest desires. Ultimately, we're only going to find what we're crying out for in Christ and in his many words and promises in this book. A few years ago, I preached this scripture, and I shared a quote by my dear brother, the fellow pastor Tim Keller, from a book that he had written on prayer. As some of you know, Keller now has stage four pancreatic cancer. He's lived a lot longer with it than already than anyone thought, but this is Keller's second bout with cancer. He had a milder version of it, scary enough, but milder version of it 20 years earlier. He said that he and his wife Kathy only got through that difficult experience with prayer. Prayer became a higher, even higher priority in their lives than before. Kathy said this to Tim one time, Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill, every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget to take it? Would you not get around to it some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss we need to treat prayer like that, Kathy said. And, and I would add, we need to treat Scripture, of course, the same way. And Tim Keller would agree. It's just this book happened to be about prayer. Prayer and Scripture go together, like I said. But you know what? I don't think that the life-saving pill analogy quite gets at what Peter is saying anymore. Just yesterday morning on Saturday, I made an emergency trip to Gainesville to see someone in the hospital there, and I didn't have time to make coffee before I had to leave the house that morning. And it just so happened on the afternoon before, Friday afternoon, I had a box of my favorite coffee in the world delivered to the house. It's from Arizona and I love it. And I was really looking forward to enjoying my morning coffee, but nope, I thought I didn't have time. I had to get on the road. And I decided I wasn't going to settle for fast food coffee or gas station coffee. I would go to Gainesville first, uh, and then when I came home, I would make an amazing pot of coffee. And that's what I did. And as you might imagine, by the time I got home, I really, really longed for this delicious coffee. I was experiencing caffeine withdrawal at this point. My head was feeling a bit woozy. I needed coffee. And let me tell you, that was about the best tasting coffee I'd ever had. I believe Peter is saying something like that when he says, like newborn infants long for the pure milk of the word. It's not like a pill. You have to remember to take or set an alarm on your phone. 
And you, and you may not feel any differently whether you take it or not. That's why we forget to take pills. There's nothing within us that's longing for pills. Peter says, by contrast, we can experience for ourselves the goodness of God when we satisfy ourselves with the spiritual milk of God's word and prayer. Only then will we discover our greatest treasure. When we learn to treasure Christ in this way, we will no longer need what other people have to give us. I don't need anyone's affirmation. I don't need anyone's approval. I don't need anyone to have a high opinion of me. I don't need what anyone has to give me, and I don't need whatever someone has the power to take away from me because I have everything I need in Christ. He's my greatest treasure. Let me leave you with these words from John Wesley about Scripture. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tacoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live, in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.